Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. Hey, everyone. This is Paul Sarker from Better Call Paul. Just wanted to remind you that the show is intended for entertainment purposes only and is not legal advice. I am not your lawyer unless we separately agree for me to represent you. And the views expressed by Mesh and me are solely our own. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we discuss the legal and business side behind the scenes of Hollywood sports and entertainment. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani. Beautiful weather, Paul, in New York City. Last week, we were talking about how terrible it was, and now it's actually quite lovely. It's like real fall in New York. It is fall, yeah. It's sunny, it's brisk, it's great. Get out there. As soon as we're done recording, I think Jess and I are going to venture out see some part of the city or, or do something because I've been cooped up. And like you said, last week was like six days of cold, rainy weather. So let's get after it. You know, speaking of how we were talking about last week of low box office numbers for the month of September, I actually have a few movies. I was debating between multiple movies to go watch. I, I feel like some of the artsy stuff is coming out right now. I'm gonna go watch Tar with Kate Blanchett today. That's supposed to be amazing. Two hours and 40 minutes. I'm not looking forward to that. I love Kate Blanchett. The other movie I was debating between was Triangle of Sadness. It's supposed to be a comedy with Woody Harrelson that's also supposed to be good. I'm excited about going to the movies again. And obviously, there's some choices now. There's some new movies coming out, some of the indie films, probably some of the Oscar-type stuff. So especially like fall in New York, you go for a walk. It's a nice sunny day, a little brisk, walk into a movie theater, come out. I love these kind of days, man. It's just nice when it's not raining here. Last week was, or well, I guess it's ongoing, NYFF, New York Film Festival. And so after our live episode last week, which everyone was jazzed about, which you guys can hear next week, one of the attendees, a good friend of mine, who basically he's a film buff, had extra tickets to NYFF that he wasn't able to use for the following day. You know, he mentioned Timothy Chalamet and, you know, Jess went all crazy and she's like, oh, we'll go, we'll go. We'll clear our schedule. So we went to see this movie Bones and All, which is a Luca Guadino film. And he did Call Me By Your Name as well. Great movie. So it's weird. It's one of those things where as I was watching the movie, I really didn't like it. I was actually disturbed. But the next day I was reflecting back on it and I realized that it was actually pretty good. It was thought provoking. It was art, right? If art is supposed to elicit a reaction and make you think, and it was beautifully shot and the performances were good. So I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but I flipped my opinion on it. I I didn't like it when I saw it. And then the next day, as I thought about it, I liked it. That's interesting. I mean, Timothy Chalamet does good movies. Whoever his, maybe it's he's making the decisions himself, but he picks good stuff. I like him. I think he's a great actor. I haven't heard of this movie, but I'm intrigued. I don't know. Based on what you said, I, I don't know. if I'm It has a 91 on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's not for everyone, but it's good. I liked it in hindsight. Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, the movies are coming out. There's stuff to watch. There is. Speaking of stuff to watch, you know, I think we're all watching this Giselle and Tom Brady thing unravel, which we don't have much details yet, but... It's been said that they've hired divorce lawyers. So this is another thing where Jess has her own take. And it's interesting how the things that you follow and the algorithms and social media can kind of give you more information if you're already into that. So everyone probably knows Tom and Giselle are maybe one of the most famous couples in the world. Tom Brady is probably the best football player ever. He's won seven Super Bowls. Giselle Bündchen is a supermodel. 
was probably the most famous model for 15 years from 2000 to maybe the late 2010s. She's earned over 500 million in her career. Tom Brady as a football player is probably close to 300 million plus another 150 million in endorsements or so. Two people who are at the absolute pinnacle of their profession and they've been married for 13 years and apparently Giselle and I guess they both now have divorce attorneys because they've had some conflicts. And I think the straw that broke the camel's back was Tom's right. decision to unretire. Right. He announced his retirement at the end of last season. They got eliminated in the playoffs. He's in Tampa Bay now. And then a couple of weeks later, he unretired and said he was coming back. And I think she hasn't attended any games this season when she normally attends all of his games. And I think she's just like, hey, you know, you promised me that we were going to spend time together with family. And you were going to take a step back from this incredibly demanding sport that just consumes everything about you for six months out of the year. And you didn't want to do that. So, I mean, that's basically all that's right. kind of being reported. But I think it's interesting that you would divorce someone on the grounds that they didn't spend enough time with you and the family or that you're concerned that they might get injured when in reality... If you divorce them, you'll spend even less time with them. Who knows what's happening behind closed doors? And I'm sure it's way more complex and there's multiple layers to it. It could really be nothing. It could just be like, hey, we're just prepping. They might do some counseling. Who knows? I think when you have that much money at stake, there's so many assets and there's so much stuff in the public eye, like hiring divorce lawyers might not necessarily mean we're going to get divorced. Maybe it's like a prepping of sorts. I would assume that they have a prenup. Yeah, they have a prenup. I mean, they were both super successful before they got married, right? So Tom Brady was in his early 30s. Giselle was probably right around 30 when they got married. They probably were both worth in the nine figures at that yeah. stage. And they were both making like tens of millions of dollars a year. I mean, I think Tom Brady had already won two or three Super Bowls. Yeah. So it wasn't like he was just some <laughs> you know, schmo. Uh, but that being said, like as a couple, they were like a power couple. And apparently Giselle... I'm seeing videos on TikTok that she may be a witch, that she was doing all what? these like, healing ceremonies to keep him healthy. And she was giving him like tinctures and doing all these rituals. And that partially, some people are saying that his phenomenal success and the fact that he's played into the, his mid forties without having a, he had one serious knee injury is a sign that maybe she was like protecting him through some metaphysical or supernatural power and that that's going to be over. So people are thinking, you know, this may be curtains for Tom as an NFL player, but I I don't know. I mean, that's just a sort of corner of the internet. We talked about in episode six, how Tom Brady is, they're business people, right? Tom Brady's got FTX. He has autograph.io. So he's got either investments in companies that are going to be well positioned for the metaverse and crypto. And he also has this $375 million deal with Fox Sports lined up for as soon as he retires, he's going to be their lead broadcaster. So it's really not about money for him. Plus he has the TB12 like fitness and health company. He wants to be the greatest. He wants to play football. He already is. He already is. He's the greatest. He wants to continue being the greatest and wants to play football. It's that competitive drive, right? Like playing every Sunday, being in the postseason, Having the ball in your hands when your team is down in the fourth quarter and the exhilaration of bringing your team back and winning, I mean, I'm sure there's nothing that can replace that. And he wasn't ready to give it up. But it's a shame if it doesn't work out, but I think they'll probably both land on their feet, you know, given their success and beauty. Beauty beauty, and success. 
But divorce, man. I mean, it's never a good thing. It's 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 all too common. It's a hard thing, and you know these are two high profile people, both been in the limelight, very liked. You know, there hasn't really been problems between the two, and so you know you, you never want to see it. Yeah, there's no allegations of infidelity or abuse. It's just really like maybe they want different yeah. things, yeah. and they have the power to sort of not compromise. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on things and and see how it plays out. But let's take a break, and then we're going to get back with, oh, poor Ed Sheeran. All right, Paul. So Ed Sheeran back in the news. He's been ordered to stand trial in the U.S. over claims. He copied the song, Thinking Out Loud, one of my faves. From Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. This has got to be exhausting for this guy, man. Like, uh, it's like one after the other. Shape of You, before yeah. that. I mean, just give this guy a break. We talked about this in episode five, actually. Our focus was Dua Lipa, but we also talked about the Shape of You case. So about six months ago, Ed Sheeran won after a trial in the Shape of You copyright infringement case. That was in the UK. And for those that don't remember, you can check out episode five. But Sammy Switch basically sued him saying that OIOIOI part of Shape of You was stolen. And like I said, Ed Sheeran won a trial. And he after the trial, he said, I hope this discourages these baseless lawsuits, which are really just like antithetical to the creative process. And I don't actually steal music from anyone. Yeah. In fact, when I collaborate with people, my process is very transparent. And, you know, I'll start filming everything and that I do when I record. And he also said like, hey, there's 60,000 songs come out a day on Spotify. So there's 22 million new songs a year, and there's literally 12 notes that are comprising right. all right. these songs in various combinations. So, of course, there's going to be some overlap. There's going to be some similarities because we're working with an alphabet of 12 notes, right. and we're coming up with all these different songs. And, like, sure, I'm not – but I don't steal things. And that's that's his take. Of course, what else would he say? From a business perspective, we talk about how copyright infringement is expensive to prosecute because these cases are complicated and you often have to hire experts and play the song side by side and also show the creative process. So you have to prove access and substantial similarity. And it's just, it's a very fact intensive, nuanced determination that is often made by judges, occasionally by juries, and it takes a lot of time. And in the case of the Sammy Switch trial, there were like a million dollars in legal fees that Ed Sheeran got awarded after the verdict. So in this case... Ed Sheeran, I think he's a bit of a target because he's such a popular musician, right? Like his songs make a lot of money. His tours make a lot of money. He's in the top 10 of most streamed artists on Spotify, probably even the top five consistently. So he's going to have a target on him. So that's the unfortunate consequence of his success. But this case, I think, is a little bit of a closer call than Shape of You. I'm not a music expert, but the case was actually not filed by Marvin Gaye's estate. It was actually filed by an investment banker who purchased a share of the catalog of Marvin Gaye's co-writer. And so the guy's name is David Pullman, and his company is Structured Asset Sales. 
because while the song was basically, I think it peaked at number two yeah. on Billboard, uh, his 2014-15 tour grossed $150 million. I think it was Song of the Year, the 2016 Grammys. It's played in like every single wedding. So it's a very popular song. It's a great song. It is a great song. I've never once, and they're both great songs, great songs. Thinking Out Loud, Let's Get It On. I have never, ever thought that the two were similar, ever. Like, I'm not thinking out loud. Oh, well, this sounds like Let's Get It On or the melodies are the same. Because to that point, yes, most like pop songs or certain like melodies, like they're using the same chords and notes. And yes, yes, yes. They're not the same song, but I, I get it if you own the asset. I mean, like in my head, I'm, is this guy really just like, do they look and they, I wonder if they have like a spreadsheet of songs and things like, okay, hey, maybe we should try. This one's a big one. This one's similar enough. Let's try to see if we can get some money out of it. Well, I'm sure he's going to behave, you know, he's a finance right. guy, right? So if he sees there's a 10% chance and his expected outcome is $100 million and it's going to cost him, you know, less than $10 million to file it, then the cost benefit for him is going to be very financial. But Ed Sheeran filed a motion to dismiss. And if you listen to the song side by side, and listen, I'm not an expert, but both sides have expert witnesses Ed Sheeran's expert's going to say, hey, there's no similarities other than the chord progression, which is very common. And by the way, there's 10 million songs that have the same chord yeah. progression. And the plaintiff side is going to say, hey, but if you think about it, like that chorus is kind of repeated, the rhythm, the chord progression, maybe it's not the melody, but it's really just kind of a different key. It's kind of the same repetition, but in a different key. So the judge said he wasn't going to grant a motion to dismiss that this should go to a jury because it's a factual question whether the songs sound similar enough for there to be infringement. And he's saying that as a legal matter, he couldn't draw the conclusion that there's no infringement. It's such a bummer. I get if you like straight up copy the song and you give no credit. And I think, you know, obviously with sampling and everything, we've talked about that before. Like you do go seek the copyrights, the record labels, do the work, et cetera. In this case, it's just like, I don't know, especially someone like Ed Sheeran, like why make stuff? Why create stuff if you're just going to get like sued for it later down the road because it's it's become popular. From an artistic standpoint, it's kind of a bummer, like these finance guys who own these assets and then are like suing people because the song sounds somewhat similar. I mean, it's not like Let's Get It On wasn't a huge hit. In no, no, amazing right. song. I mean, and, you know, it's, it's right. still to this day we hear it. It's a close call. I don't know enough about the structure of music and how songs are created to say one way or another that it's not infringement. But I, I do think that it probably is a factual question. It's not really a legal one. I also think that as long as music is this lucrative, these huge songs are going to be targets. Beyonce is also in the news for similar reasons. Right said Fred, I'm too sexy. You know, the co-writer is claiming that she didn't get permission to use that song on her newest album. Khalees said similar things like there's her milkshake song is somewhat replicated on Beyonce's newest album. And so obviously there's there's two sides to every one of these. That's true. I think it's different when the artist is going after you versus like, you know, Pullman. The owner. Yeah, like the owner of the assets. Like if I'm an artist, like I'd be like, yo, you copied my song and you gave me no credit for it. Like that's kind of a bummer. I get that argument. And I'm sure that happens a lot. I mean, also, like, you just never know when you're being influenced. I mean, again, moving to New York, I attempted to do songwriting and I played live. And, like, there were probably thousands of influences on me from growing up and, like, you know, playing music and hearing music and how it inspires you 
to come up with a certain sound or certain lyrics or whatever. Well, inspiration's not infringement, but it's like if you hear that and then you play it back in the studio and then you re- repeat that exact yeah. thing. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, I think the classic example is the Vanilla Ice, dun, dun, dun. Ice yeah, we Baby did that. versus <laughs> David Bowie. Right. I mean, he's like, I changed it, but it did sound like infringement. Anyway, tough for Ed in, to be in this litigation. It's only six months after Shape of You was cleared. Well, this case was filed like several years right, ago. Right. These things take a so long time. Long, man. But both great songs. Both great songs. Both great songs. I'm actually going to pay a bit more attention to it and see how I feel about it moving on. But let's take a break and let's continue our theme this week, which seems to be music and law. In this case, we have a new bill that's been signed that Paul would love for you to get into. So we'll be right back. This is actually a topic I'm glad we're finally able to discuss. This came up in May when I was in Atlanta and the weekend I was there, I was there for a conference and Young Thug got arrested for racketeering or RICO charges and for possessing weapons and being a founder of a gang and all that. And so part of the thing that made this, I mean, obviously it's legal, but the reason the nexus to Better Call Paul was that his lyrics were being used in the process of getting the indictment. So the state was saying to the grand jury, hey, look at these lyrics. This is a person that committed a crime, right? And so they're making this leap between what someone does in a, as an artist and saying, well, that's evidence of them, you know, being likely to commit a crime. And then actually, as I researched more deeply into this, it's actually not uncommon, especially in the hip hop setting, almost predominantly in the hip hop setting, for prosecutors to use hip hop lyrics as evidence that defendants who are predominantly African-American are committing these crimes. And so the state of California last week just passed this bill, Decriminalizing Artistic Expression Act, AB 2799. Governor Newsom signed it last week, and it basically makes it more difficult for prosecutors to admit lyrics as evidence in these criminal trials. It doesn't necessarily make it impossible, but it raises the bar. So it says that in order to use lyrics as evidence, the prosecutor must demonstrate that the lyrics were written around the time that the crime was committed and that they have some specific similarity to the crime or depict factual details that would otherwise not be known to the public. So I think it's a really great law and it could be the first of many. I think New York has a similar one that's sort of in the legislative process that could be passed. And it's saying, okay, like art is art, right? So People make art, they could be telling a story, they could be trying to create a picture, they could be just BSing. Like, we don't know what their intentions are, but it doesn't, it's a big leap to say that they're literally rapping an autobiography saying, I was at this place at this time with a gun and I shot this person. Like, it's not a confession, it's art, right? So prosecutors that try to use these lyrics as evidence, there's a couple problems with this. One is like, we have a First Amendment right to free speech. So if you are creating art, yeah. you shouldn't be concerned that it could be used against you later on in some criminal trial. And B, I mean, the federal rules of evidence are meant to dissuade the use of character evidence because it can be prejudicial. I mean, it, basically, the, the whole name of the game with evidence is like evidence has to be relevant. It has to be specific. And you can't really use evidence of someone's character 
to prove that they committed a certain act or that they behaved in line with that character. Now, there are exceptions where you can use character evidence to prove motive or intent or a preparation or an absence of an accident, but those are supposed to be narrow. Prosecutors have kind of been overusing this throughout the country to get convictions. So for context, just to compare, like I'm watching a movie, let's say an example where there's a trial, a witness is on stand, and they're trying to prove that this person's violent and they're using like, they're reading text messages that this person's written, you know, somewhere else, trying to show the jury that this person's like a violent person or something. Is that kind of similar here where in this case they're saying, if let's say a violent act was created by X artist and they were using, well, look at these lyrics where they're saying that they beat up this person or X, Y, Z. Is that like a similar, uh, are they like the, the same way they would use it to show a jury like, hey, but look what this person did or wrote or said. Right. So the idea is when you say character evidence, like let's let's not even talk about violence. Let's say like dealing drugs. Right. Like let's say you're charged with possession of illicit substance with intent to distribute and they find nothing on you. Right. They find something maybe like in a bag or something or in a car or maybe it's planted or whatever. And then they say, well, a couple of years ago, he had this, he made this song about like, you know, moving weight or, you know, dealing drugs, yeah. right? That's, that's a person who had access to drugs, who knows what drugs are, who knows how the business works. So therefore they had it in this, they must've had it on them at the time that this crime was committed. So basically they're saying something that's general is being used as evidence to prove something specific happened, which is generally not how it's supposed to work. But I, I guess where I get confused about is, a lot of times people are just playing a character in their songs. Like I could literally make a song up, say all the stuff that I've never done, and it would suck for that to be held against me. Of course, that's the whole point behind this California law, right? Yeah, because like at Meshi, uh, my alter ego, I'm rapping about all the stuff that I haven't done before. Uh, let's say, yeah, you know, I, I beat some kid up and I remember selling drugs. And then I'm on trial suddenly, and they're like, well, look what he, he clearly beat the kid up and sold the drugs. He wrote it in his lyrics. I'm like, dude, I'm, I'm playing a character. Like, that's not even true. It's not necessarily true. Right. For example, let's talk about Breaking Bad, right? Like, let's say you wrote a song that was like all the steps involved in cooking meth, yeah. right? And all the ingredients and all the process and everything or whatever it was. And then you were on trial for being a meth distributor. And you're like, I have no idea how to make meth. <laughs> they would be able to admit that those lyrics, they'd be like, actually, no, you did have knowledge about how to do it because you rapped about how to do it. So yeah. you could use it to prove like an intent or an ability to do something. So if your defense is, oh, I had no idea how that works. And they're like, yes, you do. Because you actually created this piece of uh. art that went into detail about how you knew how to do it, that's admissible. Yeah. But if it's like something more vague that says, you know, like laying people down, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, that don't yeah. obey. That doesn't mean that you actually are killing people. And so it shouldn't be used as evidence to demonstrate that you have in the past. And so really the question is like, if there's a direct link and it's specifically relevant, and the timing is kind of the same, then maybe there's some sure. value in admitting it. But otherwise, the risk that it sort of prejudices people is too great. And that's why California, and California is often on the cutting edge of these things. Other states may pass similar laws, although I don't know that 
some of the more conservative Southern states are going to get there on this issue. But it creates a double standard, right? Because there's been studies about this and people read country lyrics and hip hop lyrics kind of side by side. And they're not told what genre they come from. Or you take the same lyrics, right? And you you tell one person it's a country lyric. You tell another person it's a hip hop lyric. The people when it's labeled as a hip hop lyric, people are more likely to think sure, that sure, sure. whoever wrote it there's was a, a criminal. There's a prejudice and there. So yeah, there's like this implicit bias that we need to work through, and we've talked about that before. And another impact is, like you said, hip hop music is one of the biggest genres, maybe the biggest genre in the country in terms of the popularity of music, and the demand is out there for content that is violent that you know espouses sort of some sort of criminal behavior for whatever reason that's what's popular and artists typically you know if they're doing it to make money they want to make art that's going to be consumed by a lot of people that's going to be streamed a lot right that's going to lead to more royalties so they have an incentive to create art that meets the market demand and that may not have anything to do with whether they're committing crimes so there's a kind of a leap that you have to take there and a lot of juries maybe less so now, but they're just not as familiar with hip hop. And so they take it literally and they don't think of it as art. They take it as like an admission and that's just prejudicial. That's crazy. I had no idea that this was a thing. I mean, I wonder if you become a big enough artist, if your like legal team is like, hey, maybe you shouldn't say, like imagine like your legal team coming to you and be like, by the way, could you change your lyrics? Because we don't want you to potentially be in court because someone could use that against you. Like that would suck as an artist. It would. I mean, there was a rapper who was on the No Limit label and he was put away for like 20 years. Wow. Because he had a lyric about committing murder. Prior to being signed by No Limit, he had lyrics that were less controversial, but he wanted to sell more records. He's like, listen, the music I was making before, you know, I thought it was good, but it wasn't controversial and it wasn't really selling. So there was a conflict between my mind and my stomach. I had to eat. You know, I wanted to sell records. I wanted to make more money. I wanted to buy a house. So I started talking about dealing drugs and murdering. Even though he wasn't doing it, he was just an artist. But that lyric actually got him convicted. His name was Mac Phipps. Well, that's, dude, that's super interesting. I I did not know that this was a thing. And I mean, that, I, I guess that's good. It's progress, at least in California. California, it's on the books in New York. And there's a federal law that is restoring artistic protection. Yeah. It's a bill that was introduced, I think, last year. If it gets passed, then it would basically mean the California rule is also the federal standard. But that's, you know, it hasn't been passed yet. But the idea is, hey, let's treat art as art. We don't want to completely make this evidence inadmissible because in some cases it may actually be helpful but it's got to be direct. It's got to be around the same point in time. Otherwise, you're just basically using it to prejudice the jury against whoever is on trial. Well, that's cool, man. And I mean, look, I actually, this is learning for me. I, I had no idea. So that's really interesting. Well, so yeah, your, your rap lyrics, maybe you got to tone them down. <laughs> no, maybe I should look back on everything I've written. Investing in SPACs, heart attack. Yeah, no, well, I don't know. It's investing you know. in SPACs, looking back, I've definitely had a heart attack because it's gone right. to zero. Or something like that. <laughs> Someone like Bernie Madoff wrote a song about, you know, a Ponzi scheme. Could that be used <laughs> against him? That's can you imagine if Bernie like Bernie Madoff wrote an entire Cooking the Books. <laughs> My fast <laughs> Cooking the Books, getting mad looks. You know, whatever. Oh, that's so funny. 
Oh, dude. Okay. Well, thanks for, as always, Paul, for being educational. That's our show for this week, folks. Make sure you subscribe to us on the podcast, Apple, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen. Follow us on Instagram at Better Call Paul the Podcast. Follow me on Twitter at Meshlakani. Better Call Paul is produced and edited by Valentino Rivera, Marco Siler Gonzalez, and assistant producer Lisa Sanders. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone.